And hello out there. Happy summer day to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And the other day I was watching the Mets game, and I I was seeing the pitcher uh, situate himself on the mound, and and it got me thinking about how uh, this has been such a pitchy, rich year. Uh, and the, the 1968's been talked about a lot, and that was the last year. And I forget exactly what the dimensions were, uh, but but they lowered the mound after that because of how pitchy rich 1968 was. And it got me thinking about the the manicuring and maintenance of the ball field, and how that pertains to the pitcher. And so I, I gave our guest today, Brooklyn Dodgers pitcher Carl Erskine, a call. And uh, the conversation we had was fantastic, so I figured we'd get on to the air with it. So, Carl, as always, thank you for joining us here. And uh, first and foremost, how's your family doing? How are you doing out there today? Well, of course, I live in Indiana, the town I was born in, Anderson. And uh, we're fine. We're situated in a retirement village, Betty and I. We're both past 90 and both doing well and uh, thankful that we've, had a long marriage of 74 years. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. So we're, uh, we're still well, and uh, and what a pleasure to reach back and think about some of the days in the past and some of the excitement I had as a pitcher with the great teams of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And we always love hearing about these, these times. So uh, thank you again, as always, and, and let's go right to it. Let's go to that mound that you made yours and uh, over over at Bedford Avenue in Sullivan Place, Ebbetsfield, Brooklyn. Uh, so remind me again, what, what was the height of the, the mound before 1968? And, and that would uh, indeed be the height that you were accustomed to, correct? Yeah, I, I recall the mound was 15 inches. They played with it a little bit up and down. But uh, I like the higher mound and the sharp uh, fall-off because I threw straight overhand. And uh, Drysdale, as an example, was a sidearm pitcher. He liked the mound flat. He didn't like much of a height on it, and he had a long stride. And I always hated to follow Newcomb in a ball game because Newcomb had shoes that were size 13, and he had the mound tore up like he'd used a pitchfork or something. Or a, it was, they had to come and repair the mound a little bit for me once I came in behind Newcomb because he, he had torn the mound up so much with his spikes. But, um, but I always liked a sharp fall-off. And a little inside uh, on teams, teams can tweak the mound a little bit depending on the pitcher and as I started to mention Drysdale liked a flat mound he was a sidearm pitcher I liked a sharp uh, off the mound I liked a, a mound to go down sharply in the front because I pitched straight overhand and pushing off the rubber that gave me a little more push I felt like a little more velocity uh, pitching, pushing hard off the mound with a slope pretty sharp on the front. And I didn't have a long stride like uh, Newcomb, but uh, but the mound was uh, important uh, to the pitcher. And when you go on the road, 
you had to adjust yourself to how that ground crew made their mound for their pitchers. And it varied with different pitchers. As I said, Newcomb liked it uh, low and flat because he threw more uh, sidearm three-quarter. Throwing straight overhand, I like a sharp decline on the mound because it gave me a, a, a little more momentum, I felt like, with with a sharp drop-off. But uh, the home team could, in fact, take a little advantage of, of the, the real home field advantage in how the mound was shaped based on what uh, pitcher was pitching that day. And uh, so it was just a little mm. inside uh, advantage, we thought, and uh, nobody ever questioned it. So I, I remember also off the mound in terms of the rest of the ball field, you mentioned that there would be a little bit of gamesmanship, you know, and I'm wondering now whether the grounds crews are a little bit more uniform, but if you could go into uh, uh, that gamesmanship that you discussed the other day with me. Well, it was a little inside uh, advantage, we felt, uh, how they treated the infield on any certain day. I know there was a pitcher named Staley for the Cardinals, was a sinker baller, and they would always wet the field down in front of the home plate. So that he had a lot had a lot of ground balls hit, and they would wet it down pretty heavy in front of home plate. It would take the sting off of the ground ball, and make it easier for the fielders to 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 uh, field it. So there was a little gamesmanship going on uh, sometimes. With a team that could uh, could butt and could uh, uh, like Maury Wills, Maury Wills, he he finally found out all he had to do was chop the ball. He didn't have to hit a single, uh, a clean single. He could chop the ball. It would take a high bounce, and he could beat at first base. So he got on base all the time by uh, not getting a necessarily hit, a clean single, but a high chopper that he could beat out. That was his technique to get on base, and I don't know what the average was for him, but he must have had a very good on-base percentage because he could check that now. he <clears throat> could steal first base more or less. Right, right, which they're uh, ironically they're trying to do now uh, steal first base in certain leagues, uh, but that 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 would be a, a digression. So, would would there be anything to the the foul line? Was there any gamesmanship? Uh, there in in the chalk. Well, the foul line has to be standard in all ballparks. There wasn't much, there wasn't much you could do with the foul line. Uh, it, in Evans Field, we had a true home field advantage. The bullpen in Evans Field was down the right field line, and we could tell on the bench in the bullpen if a fly ball was going to hit over the fielder's head on the cement wall behind. Uh, we could tell whether that fly ball was going to be uncatchable or whether the outfielder is going to be able to catch it because we were setting uh, parallel with the with the wall in right field. So that was a home field advantage because the guy that sat on the end of the bench had to have a towel available on his lap. And if the fly ball that uh, was hit by the hitter, our, our home team, uh, if the fly ball, we could see whether the fielder was going to catch it or whether it was going to hit above his head. 
And if he was going to hit above his head, you'd swirl the towel, uh, swirl around, round, round, go, 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 go. So we could actually, uh, from the bullpen in right field, seeing the ball, whether it was going to hit above the fielder's head or not, we could give the sign with the towel to the base runner to keep running. It was going to hit above his head. And we could see that plainly. And that was truly a home field advantage. Yeah. Uh, I bet it was. Just picturing Ebbets Field right now in my head and, and you guys, uh, uh, the towel going round and round, it's just it, it's putting such a smile on my face, as I'm sure it is. Many yeah, well, listeners it, out there. It was just a natural home field advantage because you could help your field, your base runner, know whether to keep going or whether the ball was going to be caught. So uh, that was truly a home field advantage. So looping real quick back to Maury Wills, uh, you know, it's interestingly enough, he never had an on-base percentage over 355, which was his 1963 year. Um, In his 14-year career, it was uh, about 330. So, you know, it didn't translate uh, the way you, you imagined it. Well, he found out uh, early on, uh, you know, he he tried to learn to switch hit. Uh, I think he, le- he was uh, put on the left side because of a step closer to first base. And that did help him uh, get to first base quicker. But uh, he learned that he didn't have to hit a line drive to get on base. He could chop the ball. If he chopped it and took a high bounce in front of home plate, uh, he could beat it out. And so he got on base. Uh, his on-base percentage must have been, I don't know what it was, but it must have been very good because he found all kind of ways to get to first base. And one of the best ways he found was to chop the ball. It was in the air, and they had to wait till it came down, and he'd beat it out. And so he had mm-hmm. a high on-base percentage, which, which was his uh, long suit uh, on offense. And, yeah, it looks like 1962 was his best effort with 104 steals, only caught 13 times. He was MVP this year, had 10 triples, led the league with that, and 208 hits uh, with a 299 batting average. Uh, uh, yeah, no, Maury Wills, you know, and considering, I mean, he was 26 when he came up in 1959, so he, he was in the, the Brooklyn Dodgers system, correct? Yes, and you know what's unusual about that? I believe he was in the minors eight years before he got a shot in the big leagues. I think that's probably a long uh, average uh, for a player. Mm-hmm. He's going to make it to big leagues. He'll make it in three or four years usually. But well, his first year, I mean, he was in the Pony League in 1951, and he was 18 years old then. Okay, right. Well, he yeah, sort of so. restored the art of base running, um, which Jackie had been a, a standard setter uh, running the bases. Uh, but Maury, uh, who was also quick, light on his feet, uh, he'd be in full stride about two steps. He was a quick starter, just the way Jackie had been. And, uh, that, that's, a good, that's a good segue there. So in terms of the way the grounds crew would deal with the dirt, the infield dirt, when you had somebody like Jackie Robinson, what, what do you remember about that? Well, I think there was a tweaking of the infield uh, 
for good base running, and I think teams did that. I know in I know in St. Louis uh, there was a pitcher named Staley, a right-handed sinker baller, and they used to wet the the field down in front of home plate so that the ground balls uh, would take a thud when they hit and take the speed off of them, uh, easy for the infield of field. Uh, those are little inside tweaks that uh, ground crews could do. Uh, they used to play with the mound a little bit, depending on who was pitching. They could make it a little higher for me, coming off overhand uh, delivery. Uh, Newcomb, they would uh, flatten the mound some because he was more of a low three-quarter pitcher. So there was little tweaks that uh, the ground crew could do to favor the home team. Uh, It it wasn't necessarily illegal. Uh, It was just just a tweak that would uh, make it a little more advantage for the home team. So outside of Ebbets Field, you know, I'm guessing – that Ebbets Field, considering how used to the mound you were, that was your favorite place to pitch. Outside of Ebbets Field, or, or correct me if I'm wrong, but what, what, what was your favorite ballpark of the, uh, of the eight, you know, of the seven other teams in the league, considering that you, of course, of course did not go to the American League as often as they go now? Yeah, that's true. Well, uh, my uh, preference when I pitched was a mound that had a sharp, fall off. Uh, Newcomb, for instance, throwing more of a three-quarter sidearm, uh, he liked a long slope to the mound rather than a sharp fall off. But but uh, they could tweak the mound a little bit uh, depending who was going to be the starting pitcher. Uh, it was not obvious and it was never challenged, but the ground crew could have a, a slight advantage to the home team depending on how they slope the mound on the day of certain pitcher. And uh, I always knew that the day I pitched, uh, now you didn't have that advantage if you came in in relief. So I used to come in behind Newcomb, and they'd just have to come out and almost rebuild the mound. His 13-size shoes with spikes had the mounds just tore up. They had, they had to come out and kind of retamp the, the the dirt down and, sort of rebuild the place where your uh, foot would strike. But uh, the ground crews could could play a little bit of home team advantage uh, by the way they uh, sloped the mound, depending on who was pitching. Uh, it was a slight thing, but it really, it really was an advantage. So which city was more, was the most uh, adaptable for you? I pitched some of my best games in uh, in St. Louis, old uh, Sportsman's Park in St. Louis. I had an unusually good record against the Cardinals uh, over a lifetime. And so I liked that mound and the way that they shaped it. And uh, But each mound, really, uh, a pitcher, you know, the hardest, the hardest innings to me were the first inning and the, and the ninth inning. Because the first inning, you had to find your rhythm. You had to find your stride. You had to find your feel off the rubber, pushing against the rubber. Uh, and every day was different. And so no matter how well you pitched the last time out, you had to reestablish that uh, feel and that rhythm every time you went to the mound. So if you were going to get a – if you were going to 
beat a good pitcher, it would, it became obvious that you had to get him in the first inning. If you didn't get a good pitcher in the first inning and he got his rhythm and he got his feel, uh, he was going to be tough to beat. So I always, yeah. uh, coaching at the college level, I always told my team when we were playing against a real tough pitcher, uh, I said, look, we're going to play the first inning like it's on the bottom of the ninth. We're going to score on this guy because once he gets settled in and he gets his rhythm, he's going to be hard to beat. So the the best inning to beat this good pitcher is the first inning while he's trying to find that rhythm and, and get the feel for the day. And that was true. I, we, we beat some good pitchers by playing. I tell my guys, look, we're going to play the first inning like it's the bottom of the ninth. We're going to score a run for our pitcher, who I knew could shut him out. <clears throat> and we did win some ball games by playing aggressive in the first inning like it was the bottom of the ninth. That's, that's great because, you know, if there's any uh, Met fans out there listening, they know the other day uh, the Mets faced a, a pitcher named Sonny Gray, who's a very good pitcher for Cincinnati. But we had the bases loaded no outs. And we only scored one run. We scored one run before it was the bases loaded, no outs, I believe. But then they weren't able to get any runs in after that, you know, a strikeout and then I believe a double play. Uh, so even though there are certain rules uh, uh, that, that have been changing in baseball, it does look a little bit different to a lot of people. There, some things still ring true, and that is get, your, get that pitcher. If you, if you have that pitcher on the rope, the ropes in the first inning – Throw the knockout punch, excuse me. Yeah. Well, it, it happens often. If you don't get the good pitcher early, you won't get him. Uh, and it's always a tough thing. No matter how well you pitched the day before or the night time out before, uh, it doesn't count. You've got to reestablish that rhythm, that feel. Uh, it's hard to explain without being a pitcher yourself uh, to understand what that means. But Every every time you came in a ball game as a pitcher, you had to reestablish that uh, rhythm, that feel. And so, as a coach at the college level, I used to always tell my team against a real good pitcher, we got to play the first inning like it's the bottom of the ninth, and we to get this pitcher. If he gets settled in, he's going to be tough to beat. So, if you you could get a good pitcher in the first inning, but after that, look out. So here's my question. One of the things they've been talking about was possibly moving, and I'm trying to get the exact same, the, I'm sorry, the number that they're trying to potentially move it back, but 60 feet, 60 feet 6 inches is where the mound has been from home plate for the longest time. But they have been considering – possibly putting it, uh, I think, a few inches back. And I'd be, I'm just curious what your opinion of that would be. Well, obviously it would take a little bit of velocity possibly off of the fastball, but it would be more, uh, it would be more of a problem for a curveball. Uh, I know my curveball, uh, throwing from 60 feet, 6 inches, I could break it at the plate. If you move the mound back, now that's going to change where that ball breaks in uh, relation to the swinger, the hitter. 
and uh, it would take a lot away from a pitcher who was a breaking ball pitcher if you move the uh, move the mound differently than he was trained to throw a breaking pitch, and uh, that would be a that would be a difficult adjustment for pitchers, uh, even a sinker ball pitcher who's accustomed to sinking the ball from the six, 60 feet, 6 inches, uh, and you move it back, that ball's going to break s- sooner to the hitter than it did 60 feet, 6 inches. So changing right. the mound would, would make a, a major difference to a pitcher that had a, a good fastball, yes, it would take away a little velocity probably, but it would be more devastating to a breaking ball pitcher to change the distance that he'd been used to throwing. And a breaking ball, you want to have good velocity. Oftentimes, a pitcher can change speeds on a breaking ball. And but you want, but the the point where it's going to break is really important. You want it to break as late in the flight of the ball as possible because that makes it more difficult for the hitter to adjust. So you, uh, a pitcher, Sal Magley had a curveball mm-hmm. that you, I swear, he would throw it at your side and it would, it would almost feel like it was going to hit you before it broke. It broke so late and it was sharp. And, and he, had a, uh, he, had a one, he was a one-pitch pitcher. He didn't have a really good mm-hmm. fastball. And he very sparingly used his fastball, but he could throw a sharp breaking curve and throw it in a teacup. He just he and he could keep it just away from you, but it was sharp. It would not break until it was very late in the delivery. You think it was going to hit you in the ribs, and then it would take a sharp break, strike one. And, uh, so, well, in the end, and say, like, what, what, what would moving the mound to 61 feet, 6 inches? And apparently that – so what I'm, what I'm being reminded of was that this is being experimented in in the Atlantic League this year. And I can't find any, uh, any, any kind of, like, debriefing on how it's been doing, but it, it has been experimented on in an independent partnered league. Yeah, what, what was the change they made? One, one foot. So it becomes 61 feet six inches, and again, oh, like there's there's nothing there's nothing like new in terms of uh, I'm gonna have to like do some investigation to find out what you know what what the data shows uh, it it has been like. So, well, you know, just uh, trying to feel what that would be like to change the distance. Uh, I can tell you, boy, the curveball is better the later it breaks. And uh, that's obvious that the hitter doesn't have a chance to adjust if the break is late. And I mentioned uh, Sal Magley had a very late breaking pitch. You'd think it was going to hit you in the ribs, and that would take a sharp break over for a strike. And that's an ideal curveball to break late. Right, exactly. Sharp, yeah. Well, uh, well, yeah, I'll have to I'll have to do some more investigation to see how it has translated. But just looking, just at like seeing some scores, I mean, it doesn't seem like anything anything's drastic yet in terms of uh, the way it, it has it has been. You know, and, and the, the the part that also confuses me about it is what does that do for the bases? 
considering that the mound is 60 feet to six inches, but it's generally been right smack in the middle of the infield square, the infield diamond. Yeah. Well, it would, it would, uh, yeah, there, there would be some, some tweaking. I know I uh, coached in college uh, for a while, and, and one game I went on the road, when I went up to the ballpark, I looked at first base, and I thought, man, that looks, that looks long. But that often happens. You go to a strange park with a background different and a fence different and so on. And first base sometimes long. But it turns out that they put the bases in wrong, and they, they measure 90 feet. And the 90 feet is inside. the. It's the back of the first base, for instance. The measurement is the back of the bag, not the front. And if and I saw Diamond one day we started to play, and I thought, these bases look long to me. It turns out I had them check them, and the ground crew had put the bases in. They'd measure 90 feet, then the base. But hmm. 90 feet, the base is inside the 90 feet. So the bases were all long by the width of the bag. And I don't know how I ever <laughs> sensed that, but my my players thought I had some kind of magic uh, vision or something that I could well, you know, that. when you've been on a ball field as long as you have, like it, there are these weird integral minutia of of the the ball field that you're going to pick up on. Well, different backgrounds, uh, different parks, different. Sometimes the it does look different uh, because of the background, but in this particular day, that that base looked long. And I finally uh, asked the umpire to measure it. And when they measured it, they found out that the local coach, uh, I forget we were playing at Manchester College, I believe, uh, had uh, rightfully uh, read that 90 feet was the entrance to the base. But the 90 feet puts the bag inside the 90 feet, and he had it uh, laid out with the 90 feet, then the bag. And I spotted that. It looked too long. <laughs> when I had a measure, uh, I actually was right. My my players thought I was some kind of wizard. To, I could figure the bases, uh, look at the bases and tell they were too long. But uh, I'd been around <laughs> long enough that I could tell it looked long to me. And when they measured it, they were uh, they were just uh, the width of the bag, I think, which is, I think it's 18 inches a bag uh, square. Right. Uh, it, it was outside the, the 90 feet instead of inside. I think another thing, uh, which which basically a whole other podcast, is that they've thought about experimenting with uh, uh, bases that are just a little bit bigger. Um, to I think to the idea is to increase some of the action on the the base pads because uh, you know one of the things that baseball is criticized for these days is that everything is basically home runs and strikeouts. Uh, and, and that there's no, you know, there's just a little too much dead air in between all the uh, the action. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, has been observed. And, you know, uh, people uh, that watch the game, the spectator, uh, they like uh, to see runs scored mostly. Uh, good pitch games are, uh, are really good to watch too. But uh, mostly the fans like to see action, see electric runs scored. And baseball knows that, and they tweak the game once in a while. To, if there's not enough runs or if there's too many home runs, uh, they do a little tweaking with the rules uh, to 
favor whichever side uh, looks like the fans like. But mostly fans like to see runs scored. They like to see offense. And uh, a good one and nothing ball game is, is beautiful to watch. But I think in general, fans like to see more offense. Yeah, I would uh, consider that to be the case. Uh, but there is something so beautiful to that two-to-one ball game that is just pure, unadulterated, gorgeous baseball. Right. Well, it's uh, it, baseball. They they say it as a fault. Baseball has no clock. There is no clock on baseball. You, you can play 25 hours of baseball to get a decision, but. Uh, so that's one of the beautiful things about the game itself. Uh, and it's not a fault that games go long. Uh, if you're a real baseball fan, you don't you don't object to a long game if you see a lot of good defense. Uh, and defense is beautiful in baseball, especially in infield. Uh, I think it's one of the strengths of the game to have guys can, yeah. can handle the glove so well. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, and 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 it is that's another thing that's just beautiful to watch. It's you know it's it's almost like a ballet out there seeing great defense, especially that when when you see such a well turned double play. Um, I, I and I know we were going to make this a, a shorter episode than usual, Carl. So I I to to kind of bookend this in terms of the you know the actual ball field and how it pertains to pitching. You know, I, it, it's it's always talked about one of the unique parts of baseball is the fact that the fields are all different, that, that the dimensions are, are all depending on the, the home field, the, the, the home, the home team. And so as a pitcher, considering it's not like it's a basketball court, you can go to the court and you're, you're playing basically the exact same dimensions. How do you as a pitcher adjust when you go into a ball field that that's different than Ebbets field? Well, one of the dramatic uh, differences in ballparks were the polo grounds, and because the polo grounds had two extremes, a short, very short down the lines, about 300 feet. In fact, 297 in Evans Field was down the right field, except it had a high fence. And then uh, the outfield, of course, was uh, different in every ballpark, and there was always this comparison. That ball hit. That ball was a home run in any park, but this one, or something comparison. So, the dimensions, and they often begin to tweak the distances depending on. I know in Pittsburgh, you remember uh, the Greenberg Garden, they called it, when Hank Greenberg was traded from uh, Cleveland to Pittsburgh. They put in an extra fence inside the regular fence called Greenberg Gardens. And that was put in there specifically for Hank Greenberg to hit home runs, which he did, and others did too. So ball clubs did, and maybe still do. Uh, there's no standard. I don't believe there is any standard for the no. instances to uh, an East Park. Normally, it was because of the real estate. Uh, parks built in a downtown area in a big city had to be built on whatever the real estate allowed. So you had all kinds of distances uh, in ballparks because there wasn't any standard that I know of, uh, distance to left field, right field, center field. Uh, it, it oftentimes depended on the real estate, how much you could fit in. 
And if you go back to where Ebbets Field was uh, occupied the, the space, you wouldn't believe that a ballpark would fit in the space. <laughs> that was, I know. Uh, yeah, you just wouldn't believe it because uh, it was uh, short in some dimensions and To an automatic voice message system. Yep. Carl Erskine, E-R-S-K-I-N-E. Well, uh, everybody, of course, uh, that's the beauty of uh, live talk calling. <laughs> so we're going to try to get Carl back on right now. Give me one second. I hope everybody's enjoying. We are talking to Carl Erskine about the manicuring and maintenance of the ball field. Hey, Carl, we're back on the air. Uh, okay, Sam. I forget where we, we left off, but uh, that's the beauty of live <laughs> live podcasting. Yeah, good. Okay, <laughs> glad I got you back. So so uh, I, you were talking about uh, the dimensions, and I, I think what I was going to follow up with was I think the closest that there was ever any uniformity when it comes to the, these ballparks was the cookie-cutter ballpark in the late 60s and early 70s. Luckily, you also had Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City that came about at the same time that had a little bit of modern, uh, 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 you know, modern architecture that, that, that was unique to itself uh, compared to all those other cookie-cutter ones. But I think starting with uh, Camden Yards in the 1990s, that's all these retrofitted ballparks. That's where you started to see that, that old adage of, of having a unique dimension. Uh, uh, to your ballpark, to these downtown ballparks being made? Yeah, uh, clubs took advantage of the fact that uh, there was no standard, or if there was, I never actually knew about it, uh, that the fences had to be so far, 297 down the right field line in Ebbets Field. Uh, however, it was a high fence, about 30 feet high with chicken wire. and uh, But... They could loft a ball, a uh, soft hit line, uh, pop fly, could hit up on the fence or go over. So it was a, a short porch, and uh, it was tough to pitch that way. You had to pitch away from that to try to keep the ball from being pulled down the line because 297, even though it was high, about 30 feet high, uh, but it was a, a dimension that you had to be aware of and attempt to keep balls away from a left-hand hitter so he couldn't pull them over that short fence. And I remember pitching to Yogi Berra in a series, and the, uh, the manager called me in before the game, and he said, look, you've got to loosen Berra up. Uh, he's dug in, and he's trying to loft that ball over that short fence, 297. And uh, he's dug in his back foot. You can't even see the top of his shoe. <laughs> And so I was ordered, which I was four times in my career, ordered by the manager to knock a hitter down. I never thought that was a productive, a productive move because uh, the, the worst thing you could do is make a hitter mad. So I, right. I never liked the idea of throwing at a hitter. Uh, what what is the what was it like with I mean the foul line was basically at some point doesn't it 
didn't it basically go into the wall? Well, very narrow, very narrowly uh, to the wall. Yes, it was close. Uh, the bullpens were out in the open in those days, and uh, they were down each foul line. So we were out in the open, uh, setting right next to the the foul line, and uh, we had a little advantage there because uh, maybe I mentioned this, but the guy sitting next to the foul line kept a towel on his lap to wave it if the ball was going to hit above the fielder's head, which right, we could yeah. see plainly. We could see it. Nobody else in the park, the base runners couldn't see it. They didn't know <laughs> it was going to be over his head or he was going to catch it. But we could see it in the bullpen. And you'd have a towel and you'd wave it big time uh, to keep running. So, anyway. So, excuse me just a minute. Oh, no, for sure. Um, like thinking about Ebbets Field and just the the machination of, of okay. the place. Right, excuse me, I got I got interrupted briefly. Oh no worries, no worries. And I was I was just saying to uh, the audience about Ebbets Field, and it it just makes me just talking about the uh, you know even just talking about the ball field. It also makes me uh, think about the whole overall environment of Ebbets Field. And it's kind of a digression. It's kind of out of uh, left field, uh, uh, pun intended. Um, but I, I'm wondering, in terms of, like, the pop culture element of Ebbets Field and Brook- the Brooklyn Dodgers themselves during the time that you played, can you remember some of the, the personalities that, that were in the stands? Other than Hilda, of course, we always talk about Hilda. But what about, like, celebrities, some, some of the, the, the famous people that were fans of the Brooklyn Dodgers? Yeah, you know, one of the one of the fans was Danny Kay. He came often. He was a big Dodger fan, and uh, we saw him uh, uh, frequently at the ballpark. There were other celebrities that came on, especially the World Series. Uh, I always uh, thought the, the World Series, you know, in my day was a uh, it was an Easter parade. Uh, people dressed. Uh, men wore hats and uh, wore shirts and ties. The women dressed, and some even wore uh, fur uh, fur pieces. Uh, the World Series was a dress-up time, and uh, I know the casual era has come in now, but uh, there was a time when uh, you dressed to go to the World Series, and uh, I mean dressed big time. The women wore hats, and uh, I always thought the guy in the back row behind the women must have been uh, fighting mad, uh, women wearing big hats. But uh, anyway, that's the way it was. Yeah, and well, no, exactly. Uh, what what would it have been like had they got the branding thing a little earlier than than it ended up coming around? Would like imagine looking in and seeing uh, so many people in Dodgers jerseys, so many people in your Dodger jersey. What, do you, it, was it just not meant for the time, or or do you think that some like somebody maybe could have picked up a little bit on this merchandising a little too a little earlier than it ended up being. Well, of course, that became very popular for people to wear a number of their favorite player. Uh, that came a little later, but also uh, what came a little later was the name on the back of the uniform. And then, right, of course. Uh, I don't know if you or others would know why the Dodgers had a little number on the front of the uniform in red. On the lower, uh, on the left breast, 
they had the uniform number, and that was because the television cameras in the old days, they only had about three, one that focused on the other dugout and and a second one that focused back on the on the home dugout and then the center fielder one. But when players would walk to the plate, you couldn't see the number on their back. So the Dodgers began to put a small red number on the front of the, that player. So as you walk to the plate with the television camera on the opposite side filming you walking to the plate, uh, players, uh, fans could see the number of the player coming to the plate. And that was a, a little inventive idea of the Dodgers hmm. to put a red number on the front. So, and, uh, and, and it, you got me curious as to when those uh, came about. So th- I'm guessing this was a uh, a Walter O'Malley I- introduction. Yeah, well, Buzzy Belazy was the general manager. I would I would credit him with uh, probably that mm-hmm. move. Okay. Uh, and. Uh, but it worked. It was uh, it was an important uh, thing because of the number. Then later they began to put the name on the back, but they retained the, the number on the front because of the hitter walking up to the plate. Uh, you could see you could see the number on the front, and uh, so that became a standard uh, thing. At least I think most clubs uh, followed the yeah. example. So I'm looking at it now. Um, 1938, of course, was the first time that the Dodgers script, the the iconic Dodgers script, was introduced, as well as the Brooklyn script. Actually, 1939 was the first time they had the road Brooklyn jerseys. But going down, it looks like it was not. Uh, it did not the the numbers you speak of did not come around until 1952. They were only worn worn on the home uniforms, and it looks like your road uniform said Dodgers as opposed to Brooklyn across. Without the red, right. without the yeah. red, uh, the the numbers. Yeah, I think you're correct about that time. Uh, yeah, that was that was a change, and uh, television was responsible for that. So that, uh, and you know, in the early years, television showing the ball field, the ter- ball fields looked terrible. The grass was worn <laughs> out, right. and uh, they used to spray paint uh, in the grassy areas. They used to spray paint uh, green on the dirt. And from the, at the camera angle, it made it look pretty good. But uh, without uh, touching up the field a little bit, there were so many worn spots where the players had played pepper and warmed up that the, the ballpark looked a little ugly. It wasn't really uh, trim and neat like it, it shows now. Of course, they've, they've developed. Uh, I'm proud of Purdue University here in Lafayette, Indiana. Mm. They developed the grass that was uh, a type uh, that would uh, was more durable and it didn't wear down as bad and leave bare spots because when TV came in it was uh, the ballparks looked really rough because where the, <laughs> where the players had played pepper and and warmed up there were bare spots all over the place and they finally started uh, spray painting uh, the ground green to take the edge off of that, the ugly bare spots and uh, <laughs> And that was one of the early moves in television. And television certainly had a lot to do with the way this game developed in the latter part of the 20th century. And just thinking about it, when you're talking about what the ball field looked like on television, that's what, you know, you hear it from 
from from kid after kid, you know, people who were kids in the late 40s, early 50s, the first time they saw Ebbets Field, after seeing it in black and white uh, on on television, it just made the impact of that colorful, technicolor, real-life moment when they walked up the corridor and saw Ebbets Field, it made it that much more spectacular because of the the underselling of the black and white television. Yeah, right. I remember when color came in, we had a monitor uh, and saw it for the first time, and it was amazing to see the field in color. And the the outfield fences oftentimes were painted in uh, various uh, uh, advertisements, and it was a colorful thing to see. And when I saw that first time in a monitor uh, on Ebbets Field, it was just amazing to, to see color uh, on that screen. So it, that was a real breakthrough. It's been such a fantastic conversation with you, Carl, about the ball field. You know, it, we, we hit on all these little details uh, throughout our history of uh, these chats, but, you know, I, I really I, I appreciate you coming on here and, and all, you know, we always have a different angle to start, and we always we, – we, we, there's never – a dull moment. Uh, uh, and there's, al- there's always something to talk about with you about uh, the era. Well, I appreciate you uh, talking to me because, uh, you know, you get things in life that uh, happen, but in baseball, things were burned into your memory. You just you went through the fire and uh, you just uh, absorbed it, and uh, and I'm thankful I got to do that. And we are thankful you got to do that, and we greatly appreciate you constantly sharing all of that, those burned memories uh, with, with your fans. So, again, Carl, as always, thank you for joining us on the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast. My pleasure, again, and I'm happy to do it anytime. Thank you, Carl, and thank you all to, uh, for listening to the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast today. Stay safe out there, stay healthy, stay strong. And uh, long live the Brooklyn Dodgers. Thanks again, Carl. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody.